welcome to Hero with a Thousand Potions, a gaming podcast where two 30-something gamers examine the storytelling and gameplay of popular and niche RPGs. It's like a book club with inns that you restore your health at. This is season one, and we're talking about Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition, released on the Nintendo Switch in 2020. My name is Tyler, and I am joined by my friend Nate. We invite you to join us on this adventure by playing Xenoblade alongside these episodes in which we will scrutinize and appreciate Xenoblade chapter by chapter. This episode, we're getting into chapter three. Nate, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing good, and I think it's pertinent to mention, if we haven't made it clear before, we're doing this completely fresh on our own, too. We have not played this game before. We have no prior experience with it. I think we've elaborated on that a little bit. You know, if you're doing the uh, game with us, we want to have the same experience you're having to where we can share in the adventure together instead of something where we're trying to educate or enlighten people on deeper truths about the game. We're discovering them for ourselves as we play. I'm glad you underscored that, Nate, because I don't think it's been very apparent that we are doing this as a blind playthrough. I don't think all of our major series in this podcast will be blind playthroughs, but this one certainly is. And, and it was exciting for us because uh, we both have this list of games of like, Nate, have you played this? No. Tyler, have you played that? No. You know, and uh, for this, it was a case we both hadn't played it. So we felt like we would come into it on equal ground. So the chapter begins with a flashback. Fourteen years ago, seven travelers in Arctic gear are crossing a snowy wasteland. One of them is a child. They arrive at a stone door against a mountainside. The door has symmetric etchings on it, and it opens. I don't know exactly how they managed to open it, and the travelers go in, and inside we see something magnificent. There's a large, icy, blue crystal pillar and a beam of blue light piercing it at an angle. It reminded me a lot of the Crystal Tower from Final Fantasy XIV. Now, Final Fantasy XIV came out later, so I would have to say Crystal Tower is inspired by that. But what it does, it gives the image of uh, kind of a beacon, you know, a lighthouse, so to speak. So if you're in this frigid uh, wasteland, as you said, or this mountainous snowscape, uh, where your vision is obscured, this would be a way to find the place, is to light the thing up and draw people to it. Now, if you wanted people here, why you would put it in the middle of this location, that's unknown. But maybe this wasn't always the situation for this facility to be in this location, because as we know, you're walking on top of a giant body. So the... Um, ecosystem could change as rapidly as the location of the giant body on which it's located so um what i do know is that a beam shooting outwards could mean two things either energy is being collected here or being sent out we don't know there, there isn't any indication of which is which but my I'm leaning towards this place collects energy because we see inside an item that has a blue glow around it. So my idea is this might be like a charging station of some kind. I don't know what we're looking at here. It's such a dramatic environmental contrast from the from the first few chapters of this game we've been playing. Rolling grassy fields, a sci-fi colony over a lake, a 
more of, more of a typical cave environment, and then we have this snowy wasteland. Regardless, there's a time skip, and then that stone door with the etchings opens again, and it's Dixon. He's in Arctic gear as well, and he's still wearing that silly bandana on, <laughs> under his fur parka hood. There's probably going to be a um, long backstory of how he got the bandana. It was his father's or wife's or something, and it was the last wish that he wear it to remember them or something. So uh, that's how that's how anime goes. Whenever there's a clothing item that's distinct, we have to get a backstory for it. That's pretty good. Can I come up with one on the fly? Um, it is his brother's wedding cummerbund uh, that he died in just after his wedding, and he wears the cummerbund on his head now. But well, got- quick, quick, quick tangent for that. Uh, the closest thing I can think of is uh, back in the day, you played Street Fighter Two, and Ryu had a red headband Hadouken! with a white with a white outfit. Well, we had to get a game where we explained where he got the red headband from. Well, Ryu used to wear a white headband until Ken gave him his after he got wounded in combat. You lose. So uh, the red headband was actually originally Ken's, and it's to remind Ryu to never lose his focus, to never get upset by the... uh, the negative things out there in the world so uh, it's just one of those things you know we got to get the backstory is that for real it is for real yes oh i've never heard that but i do not keep up on street fighter anything uh dixon enters the seven explorers are all lying on the ground now are they dead are they passed out are they hypothermic we don't really know dixon approaches an altar and the monado is suspended in the air above it sort of spinning softly and a ch- the child is collapsed at the foot of the altar in front of it. Dixon ex- inspects the child, and it's Shulk. He kind of pulls the shoulder over, and they do the, the dramatic reveal, and it's it's absolutely young Shulk. It is very, very obvious. Dixon picks him up and carries him out of the strange shrine cave, and I didn't see him do anything with the Monado. The Monado's still there, as far as I can tell by this cutscene. Well, now they know the location, so whether he goes back and gets it later, you know. Um, the um, the thing that was weird to me was, uh, I don't know if this stuck out to you, the size of Shulk's body didn't seem dramatically different. He didn't look like a little kid to me, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm picturing Shulk... I, I haven't looked this up. Maybe I should. We can toss it in here. Uh, but I'm picturing Shulk as like 18 to 25, right, in the game. So he would be a kid kid. And one, why would you be bringing a kid on this expedition? Uh, two, he's pretty big for if he was in the space of being 8 to 12, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. Um, who, who knows? Maybe Shulk's 35 and we never knew. Shulk sounds 10 years older than his model suggests. Yeah, definitely. Um, so there was a point for me where I was kind of wondering, I was like, wait, is Shulk not your average Hom? Is this some sort of case of a guy was rescued and suspended and whatever? But that's quickly disproven in the fact that Shulk like he talks about this later this occurrence with ryan so uh it's just a just an average like uh they were on an expedition 14 years ago dixon rescued him whatever but that wasn't apparent that wasn't 
super clear to me in this scene i was wondering i was like well, why does he pretty much look exactly the same to me 14 <laughs> years ago you know what's he doing there was he part of the expedition is he stalking it why take shulk not anybody else is there a reason that shulk is proximately closer to the monado altar than everybody else i mean when you see how much obi-wan aged in uh, 18 years you have to wonder what's going on shulk <laughs> All right, so next scene, we are back to the present day. Uh, the boys are going to head to Colony 6 to see if uh, the people from Colony 6 spotted where the Mechon went. They're going to go to the Bionis' knee on the way. We're setting off on our adventure. Oh, wait, no, we're going to go back into town. There are lots of quests, and uh, everything mostly looks fine back in town. Um, there isn't really a day of mourning, still lots of shops operating, vegetables and weapons to sell, quests to do. Uh, there is one woman who told me she can't sleep because of the horrors she, uh, saw. But as I'm going through this town, I'm getting a, a sense of there, there is a little bit deeper of a quest system. Earlier... Um, when we were talking about the quests, I said they were very kind of shallow to me. This was an earlier episode, I should say, mm -hmm. uh, where we're getting a little bit more flavor and depth to the quest now. I found a quest where we're now familiar with the feature that the Monado has of giving Shulk a glimpse into the future. Well, there were side quests where... Uh, Shulk saw a man, uh, Giorgio, if I'm saying that right, he saw him working himself into a collapse. And then Shulk is prompted to intervene and say, can I help you with anything? Because I don't want this to happen. Um, Giorgio in this vision is on the ground asking for Paola. So um, the second instance of this is Shulk sees a man named Leopold being uh, squeezed for money by a uh, loan shark mm -hmm. and that that prompts a whole other quest where we find out that the loan shark is uh, borrowing this man money and then asking for it back uh, way too quickly and at exorbitant rates but also the the reason this man doesn't have money is there is a woman who is taking all the money from him uh, who is working for the loan shark uh, Innocent little Sylvianne that we did a quest for back when we started the, the game is apparently, I don't know what her business is. I don't want to make any judgment calls, but the kind of money that this guy is spending on her, I, I don't know what's going on. Something untoward is happening here. So these quests are pretty deep and they have uh, an impact on how the affinity system progresses. I can choose whether to spill the beans to Leopold, the guy uh, who's being taken advantage of, or I can confront the loan shark, King Squeeze, as he's put. So a lot of interesting things going on here, and I'm taking back my previous criticism of the side quest system back in town. Yeah, uh, some are some of them are getting better, and some of them are kind of the same. Um, but uh, but I'm also pleased to see them kind of going in a more narrative-driven, or I should say, consequential direction. Did and to just be involved in the um, the world a little bit more than, hey, there's there's monsters out there we need you to fight. Can you go fight them? And it's like, well, 
we have soldiers here. You know, why are you asking us to do that? You know, it goes into situations where because of Shulk's unique position to see visions of things, he's really the only one that can solve this problem. Uh, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, uh, the old lady wouldn't be running up to a soldier and saying, hey, can you do this for me? Or wouldn't be running up to Shulk asking to do that when she could ask literally anyone to do it. It's Shulk kind of being prompted to intervene on his own. So I like that. Mm -hmm. Did you do any gem crafting? I did. Um, the, The system is cool. I understood it pretty well. I have a ton of gems from the side quests and from trading and from generally doing every activity I can. So there wasn't anything I produced from gem crafting that was especially powerful. Maybe I'm not utilizing it to its fullest ability, but it was generally within the the power curve of everything else I already had. But it was a cool system. It was interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. So what you do is you at the beginning of chapter three, we're introduced to the this item crafting uh, system in which you can add gems to your gear. Some gear have gear slots. Some some gear come with gems permanently locked into them, and these gems provide some sort of additional attributes to your gear. It could be increased attack damage, defense, adds poison resist, adds fire damage to your weapon. There's a huge kaleidoscope of abilities and, and and magnitudes of effects on top of them with multiple tiers. Anyways, in order to produce this, you go to a particular person in town at the the gem forger and you and it's it kind of plays out like a mini game you pick one it's interactive between two of your party members and this we only have two right now but you know i assume we'll have more and one's called i think a shooter and one's called an operator and as i'm looking at it i think the shooter takes these gem pieces that you've accumulated by killing monsters and fill in the blank and he shoots them into the forge and then the operator smashing these buttons against it and they're both like hollering at each other and and getting really really excited and there's like a heat meter that goes up and i'm just thinking to myself this as i'm crafting gems it just sounds like absolute madness it sounds like two people at an arcade that are really really high on something playing skee ball to you all right to me to you awesome to me to you all right to me all right all right there we go to you Woo. there we go to you Woo. yes all right i suppose i personally love it i love any game that tries to make the process of crafting or getting items or whatever you're doing whatever activity you're in i want it to be immersive you know uh if i'm crafting something i want to go to a table have them putting pieces together grinding materials lighting up a a forge you know picking up a a piece of steel and dipping it into a, a kill i i personally have been dissatisfied whenever a game uh, wants me to craft something or do an activity and they just kind of stand there and rub their hands together for a few <laughs> seconds and then voila it's in your inventory you know that's unsatisfying uh-huh. to me now the inverse of that that this game kind of doesn't do immersively for me is when you're running around the field and you're picking up plants and things and it's just a glowing ball in the air it's like let me bend down and pick up some materials or mine something from a piece of rock uh so it, it it does spectacularly in the crafting section of, of making me feel like, yeah, I, I made that. And then in other areas, it leaves me kind of feeling unsatisfied, but mm-hmm. I like it. 
Is there anything else you wanted to talk about in Colony 9? Yes. So the field music, uh, because we're as pretty much wrapped up every single thing I could here, spent a lot of time with the field music, which um, I believe the track is just called Colony 9. Uh, it, it's when you're outside of town, you're running around doing quests um, in the open world. And the first thing I can think of, it was stuck in my head for days. And I was like, I feel like I've heard this even before playing this game. And I did a little research here. It, it sounds very Yasunori Mitsuda to me. And he's done several other games that we have played and loved. But I, I finally figured it out. Time Scar from Chrono Cross is the intro song. Plays during the intro video. Starts out very soft and contemplative. But halfway through, it kicks into a more action-packed, high-tempo pace. And the two songs, side to side, sound almost identical to me. Post-production Tyler here. We are going to play these songs side by side to help draw the comparison. Here is Colony 9 from Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition, composed by Yoko Shimomura. And this is the up-tempo half of Time's Scar from Chrono Cross, composed by Yasunori Mitsuda. of tracks like that in this game we've commented on it before and i have a feeling we'll be commenting on it again of the the shared language of uh, square enix music kind of bleeding over into this even though it's monolith soft a lot of square enix veterans here making the music for this game and one more thing so th i think this is my last one more thing because the next bullet point is tefford cave on my list but there is a side quest 
um, where Ryan mentions that if things get tough for the guy at the top of the hill, he can just run away by jumping off the cliff into the lake below. And I think you had a discussion about how you were really intrigued by just at the very top of the mountain, jumping off the cliff into the lake. So it's now canon that Ryan has done that <laughs> and that that is his resolution to problems is to just run away and jump off things. It felt really mighty at the time. So after we've done all of our shopping and questing and gem forging in Colony 9, we carry on to De Tefra Cave because Tefra Cave uh, connects us to the Bionis Knee, which is... The, uh, let's say the halfway point in between Colony 9 and Colony 6. When we're back in Tefra Cave, not much has changed in the beginning. Um, there's still that elite that kind of blocks the way, but I'm feeling strong enough now to just take it down with just Ryan and myself, and I do. It's a armored caterpillar type. He's kind of big, but he's not too much of a problem. Farther back in the cave, uh, it is populated by some Homs now, from some militia men and a locked door that we passed uh, the first time we were in Tefra Cave at the end of chapter one. Uh, that door is open now and we can continue farther into the cave. The cave has multiple levels and our in-game map is, shows us that there's that there's much more to the cave than you might we might have originally thought in chapter one and so we're exploring it. There's more monsters. There's what other monsters are there? There's more bunnets, the, the, the bunnies with the fists in their tails and the clubs and such that they have. There's more bats, there's little lizards on the ground. Well, the bunnets with the weapons, they've got much more menacing weapons now. Before they are just like planks of wood or something, mm. and now they're pieces of steel with jagged edges, things like that. <laughs> there, I, I forget what it was, but there's like a swarm of spiders with like a big spider as a side quest, uh, and as soon as I killed them with an AOE hit, and then I was just looking at like 12 treasure chests I had to open, and I was like, it's more work to loot them than it is to actually kill them. There's some quests in here from these militiamen that we can use. Some of them take us back outside uh, into the upper reaches of Colony 9, looking down the lake, gorgeous views down there. Um, but I don't remember very much about them. The, these quests weren't very consequential to me personally. No, but the only one was there's like a guard captain who's gunning for the, I don't know if it's Colonel Waluigi's job she's gunning for now or just a promotion in general, but she's all the way back at the like soldier base in Colony 9. She sends you into the cave to take care of monsters. So a, a little bit of jumping back and forth. Thankfully we have teleport, but uh, she's got questions here and she says how she's really going to be ripe for that promotion now that you've helped her out. So that's about the only thing where maybe we're moving a ball down the field, so to speak, by doing these. But the rest of it's just kind of your typical chores list. So as we're exploring the caves, uh, the next section, uh, the, the crew comments how the there's ether lamps throughout the path of the cave, and uh, it, it's what traders use as their guideposts to make their way through the cave. Now, personally, the cave is pretty linear. There's not tons of branching paths, but maybe that's just for my sake as a gamer that there are a lot of more paths I don't have access to. 
But this pathway that is open to us, that door that opened fresh, uh, apparently is how Colony 6 and Colony 9 link together. There are traders who use this path as their uh, route. But now we, as we explore a little bit more, we find a crew of Colony 6 traders that were killed by monsters. Suspiciously, the traders look exactly like soldiers. They're not dressed as traders. So, you know, they have armor, they have gear. So I would expect they're suited for combat to some degree, but still something got the better of them. Shulk and Ryan decide that out of respect for these people who probably had families and children of their own, that uh, they should do their best to lay the bodies to rest. They say, quote, what's born of Bionis returns to Bionis, and that is the way of the Hans. So they're placed in some sort of pool. I don't know if it's just regular water or like a special ether pool, because regular water probably isn't going to dissolve these bodies. But we see, as they're placed into these pools, evaporating energy as the the slain men seemingly return to Bionis, like they said. Now, I don't know if you saw it, but the the evaporating energy almost looks exactly like Final Fantasy X's souls that are being returned yes, to Spira. I do have that note. They look like pyreflies. Yes, that's it. That's it. So they dissolve these bodies in a magical cave pool with pyreflies flying out of them. I don't understand it. They've I forget who says it, but whoever had that quote was born of Bionis, returns to Bionis. It sounds very profound. There might be... You might think that there was a ritual, a, cult, a custom, a tradition associated with that, but we kind of, I feel like there should have been more ceremony about it. About it. Maybe it's because I'm feeling suggestive about the pyreflies. I mean, can you imagine Ryan in a, with a summoner staff in a white and pink kimono um, spinning around in the water doing ascending? No, I can't. And after this, they they kind of um, they have a lot of chats related to this. Sometimes this game has more exposition than I need in some areas. Like, for example, when the door was open that we first went into this cave, we got a short little explanation of how the doors open now when it wasn't before. They say huh. it has to do something with the Mechon attack, you know. But in every other game, you just you walk by doors that have red lights and then suddenly later they have green lights, you know, and we don't really need to know why mm -hmm. we just, you know, Hey, that's the next stage of the game. This game likes to stop you and tell you why every little detail is the way it is. It reminds me of, I, I remember these moments a little bit in Xenogears where it's like, I didn't really need that or Xenosaga, which is way worse in that department. So when we're sitting talking about, the traders, the guys uh, make a point to, like I said, talk about how they had families, kids, all this stuff kind of waxing on about the slain uh, traders. And it doesn't really go anywhere and it doesn't add anything to, you know, just 
walking up to a pile of corpses and I know nothing about them and I just heard about traitors five seconds ago and then after the fact trying to deepen my connection or caring to them just kind of falls flat for me so this sequence it it's more so the best thing I got out of it was teaching me a little bit of hom custom but when they keep kind of going on and trying to make me feel deeper feelings about it I'm just not there so mm -hmm. I wondered if it was just priming the next story beat. So we we retire these bodies, and then Ryan and Shulk resolve to to camp out and and like nap in the middle of the cave. They build a campfire. Oh no, this is what happens. They recognize that. Oh my goodness. Well, there might be stronger enemies in this cave than we suspect. We're going to need our energy for that. Time to go to bed right now. And so mm -hmm. what they do is they build a campfire in the cave. There's not much oxygen in like enclosed environments like caves and so you may not want to be burning it off by combusting a bunch of wood i don't know where you got the wood but they got wood they're building a fire in the cave floor next to the sparkling blue ether pool and they're watching one another in shifts because of this these alleged stronger monsters that killed these traitors i mean personally if I thought that there were monsters here. I would probably not decide to go to bed right away. I would say, hmm, let's get out of here as fast as possible. Let's complete the journey with the most constrained amount of time that enemies have to kill us. They don't do that because we've got to, we have we need to have another conversation. So in as they're having this campfire scene, Shulk and Ryan muse over the purpose of the attack. Um, they're not really convinced that it was for all about just eating Hams. Um, and Ryan supposes he knows why the Monado picked Shulk. He says, you are a survivor of the expedition team. Ryan knows this. And he says, Dixon told him. And Shulk acknowledges it. So Shulk, we are referencing the cutscene that we saw in the beginning of the chapter here now we're talking about it ryan knows the story and shulk does too yeah um, there's a couple things in this conversation that stuck out to me too like you mentioned there's a specific quote of they say it's hard to believe living things are just a, just sources of energy for machines you know so they that's what they've been told is the reason for the attacks but there is a mild level of skepticism among them like you know is this really why this war just keeps going on that's all there is to it you know and then there's a quote from ryan i believe that happens before we get into the talk about the expedition he says just because the Monado showed you the future doesn't mean you can do anything about it. So we're kind of, we're setting up that there, there's nothing you can really do about it. You can't blame yourself for not being able to change circumstances of what you're, uh, what you're shown. Now there's a little bit of narrative disconnect here because I did those side quests where I was shown the future and I absolutely changed it. You know, the, the the outcome of that is people's lives were better for it. So Ryan, they may have wanted to have withheld those side quests until after this scene, the sequence of scenes. But I know as a player that Ryan's not completely in the right with this quote of his. It's also interesting to me yeah, that everybody knows about the expedition the townspeople at large must seemingly know they knew of the the monado on their way there they already knew what it was 
because it was called the Monado Expedition. I don't know if that was given to it posthumously, but it seems the way in which it was phrased. They knew they were searching for the Monado. They weren't just randomly looking at runes and like, oh shit, what's this? The the legendary sword that can cut down the Mechon was known by these people and they were in search for this specific thing, from what I'm to take away from that explanation. The Monado is supposedly the legendary sword that Bionis used to kill Mechanis. Um, I, I don't know how that works on a Titan to Homs sort of scale, but they're saying that they're one and the same. I think I misheard Shulk as he was explaining this because I have this written down here. I want to work out in secret. And he doesn't say that. He doesn't want to work out in secret. He's saying he wants to work out its secrets, uh, referring to the secrets of the Monado. I'm, I, I, and it's not that I mistyped it. I misheard it. I really thought he said, I want to work out in secret. I want to work out its secret. He is pretty thin. Uh, Ryan is showing him up in the games department. So I could see. You know, you're you're hanging out in town, living the peaceful life for the last year, but now you got to get into shape and start fighting. And Ryan's probably showing him up pretty hard. So I think both are true. He probably does want to work out secret. I want to work out its secret. It's I-T-S, no apostrophe. I want to work out its secret. I want to work out its secret. They're sleeping in shifts. And finally, it's Shulk's turn to sleep. And sleep he does. And he dreams. And in this dream, we're treated to a vision. In this dream, Shulk is standing on one side of a bridge. And the bridge is ashen gray. The guardrails on this bridge are chains held up by black jagged spikes that look like demon horns. And on the other side of this bridge is this enormous obelisk of dark rock. It's gigantic. A dark ashen fog envelops the entire scene and there's this mysterious man on the other side of the bridge in front of the in front of the structure speaking to him and he says do you wish to change it the future and we're checking in again with this theme of change of the Monado and 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 Shulk's and together Shulk's ability to to change the future and now this this mysterious person's kind of asking him about it we can't make out too many details of this mysterious person uh he's a slim young man kind of like shulk is although the voice is different enough for me to think that well at least it's not voiced by the same voice actor as shulks and he asks him will you oppose destiny if you can find the true Monado, you can. Well, what the hell is the true Monado? This scene, you know, there's this giant black obelisk. We've been looking at towers multiple times in this uh, chapter here. So there's a, a big black tower. There's a big blue tower. There Maybe there's multiple artifacts, multiple legendary weapons. Aside from that, there's also the uh, quote from Dixon that the, the Monado's got a lot of hidden powers. So maybe the version we have or we're using is a simple, a simplified version of the tool. The true Monado is on the inside. There's something waiting to be released. Like, like you said, if Bionis used this thing, it wasn't like the toothpick of destiny for him <laughs> or even smaller. That thing is 
tiny. It's like a it's like a speck of dust to him in comparison to the size of his body. So there's got to be some other element of what makes this thing special. Um, and we've seen that it, its capabilities have expanded. Dunban used it in some capacity, but it, its capabilities are growing. So maybe the Truminato is the same thing, but with all of its abilities unlocked, working synergistically. Also, you're saying there's this theme of challenging destiny. Um, if our last chapter was the theme was faces, we were talking about faces nonstop. That's everybody was dwelling on a machine having a face. This chapter is hitting us hard with changing the future, challenging fate. So you can't change it. You can't do anything about it. Don't blame yourself, blah, blah, blah. Now we're this the side quests, the visions, the man himself saying, do you want to change it? So I, I feel like that's the point of this chapter to get across is our purpose as a player, as a main character, is to do what others can't look at the future and say, no, that's not the way I want it. I want it to be this way instead. The Monado has so many powers. It's got this power, it's got that power, it's got emerging powers, it's got more powers we don't know about yet. It can affect the future. It has an actualized form that we we're just learning about. If if a Mary Sue were a sword, the Monado would be it. Yeah, it's gonna solve it's gonna have a setting for every problem. It's the what is that, Swiss Army knife of video game weapons? I guess so. And uh, there, there's one thing Ryan says, too. He postulates that, he says it out loud, that uh, Shulk was chosen by the Monado. Uh, he he contrasts it with Dunban can't handle it. So I don't know. The first time we see Dunban using the Monado at the very beginning of the game, he's already kind of under its sway, getting drained or damaged by using it. I don't know if that's the case from moment one, or if we're looking like that's one year of Dunban handling it. But Shulk's, Shulk's never been under that condition with the Monado. I don't know if we're going to get to a point where we see Shulk starts to, you know, experience some side effects with it to, to kind of counteract that Mary Sue effect that you're talking about. But we haven't seen any of that with him, whereas that's all we've seen when Dunman tries to wield the thing is this thing is kicking his ass trying to utilize it. So if that is the case, if there's never any side effects for Shulk, then I would also agree that he is chosen by the Monado. That's pretty clear in the story at this point. The The biggest thing to come out of this, though, is that uh, Shulk is now seeing a new vision. Ryan uh, is surrounded with spiders. Hold on, hold on. So, we went oh. from an ashen vision to a sepia tone vision. Okay, yes. So yeah, the the dream sequence is not necessarily. Uh, they're two different sequences. I I think the dream sequence isn't a future thing. It isn't a prophecy of any kind. I think that is kind of a a spiritual. Uh, what's the word? out-of-body experience uh, i forget the official term for it uh proje astral projection astral kind of situation. projection sure so so that one could be happening live like that man whoever he is could be somewhere out out there in that moment saying oh okay shulk's asleep i can i can talk to him now who knows i have no idea 
Um, but yes, the visions are different. The sepia vision that we're about to have with Ryan surrounded by spiders, this is more in line with our uh, the, the, the same similar uh, visions of Shulk uh, watching the future unfold for him. The one he saw with Fiora, the one in the side quests, we're, we're seeing a vision that is seemingly from every piece we can put together, this is going to happen in the near future. And at the end of it, we have a large spider, seem probably the mother of all the tiny little spiders. It is colossal. I mean, yeah, it's about ten times the size of our heroes, if not more. The a large, um, I don't know what what are spider legs, the blades called. I I don't know that I call it a claw, but like its mouth parts. No, the the leg, like the little tip that is like the sharp object oh. at the end of a spider's leg. I don't know that I've ever logistically known what that is, so I'm just going to call it a claw. The claw of the spider is uh, impales Ryan through the chest, so seemingly a killing blow in this vision. Not another one. Not another one. Yeah, we talk about uh, some of the the scenes with a. a maybe exposition we didn't need this one breaks the uh rules or commits the sin of repetitiousness so i think we see this scene three times maybe four and and they're really hitting home that like this is gonna happen this is gonna happen but i think it loses its impact i they kind of they show it too many times for me to believe that this might happen it's leading a little bit too much for me Right. And that was, I think that was the case as well with the lasting comment from the, I'll just call him the shadow man, when he says, will you oppose destiny? If you can find the true Monado, you can. Um, Shulk is rehearsing that line in his head a couple times, and we hear the shadow man's voice come up um, over the course of the next few plot points um, as he's kind of processing what that could mean. That's that's a general rule for writers is to avoid repetitiousness because first time it has its impact, second time its impact is lessened, but it's it's still within the the frame of making its point. But the third time you repeat something, that's when it starts to get grating or is counteracting the point you were trying to make. So, just a uh, small observation there that. Uh, and again, I don't want to criticize, you know, uh, this this game has more of a anime feel to me. And for any of our listeners, I have watched countless hours and hours of anime in my lifetime. I was an anime aficionado in my 20s. But uh, there are certain trends that I've kind of grown to loathe, and that is... Uh, repeated flashbacks. If anyone has watched Naruto and has seen uh, Lee uh, commenting about how he doesn't have the ability to use jutsu, it, the the scene will just stick in your head of you've seen it at least 25 times because it's just constantly referenced in flashbacks. So uh, I've, I've learned to uh, cherish those certain sequences that the story presents once or twice and lets us really think about on our own instead of hitting us with it again and again. When the sepia tone dream ends, 
Ryan rouses Shulk awake, and we are beset by a swarm of small spiders. We, uh, we handle them well enough. It's not too challenging, but it's time to go. Um, there is a heightened intensity in the cave, and we continue plunging forward through it. We, let's see here, we continue through, through Tefra Cave, and we walk into a spider nest. There are these little, little webbed egg sacks sticking up out of the ground up to, let's say, knee height, and one of our characters comments that it looks like a spider egg, but there are mechon parts there as well. And then someone sa- uh, Ryan says, Ryan says, probably some type of arachno. Following that, uh, Ryan gets webbed, like completely encased in webs, and is hoisted through a hole in the ceiling of the room we're in right now. And that scene with the that's that's on the second time we've seen something where a organic uh, being has some sort of mechon part attached to it. At the very beginning of the game, there was a uh, like a bug thing that typically would use rocks as shells or uh, I would imagine it as a defense mechanism, but had mechon parts or machine parts it was using as its shell instead. And we we're really interested in killing it and acquiring those machine parts for use back at the colony. So there's some degree of maybe the game setting something up here of nature or bionis's uh, systems or you know organic systems integrating loose mechon technology loose mechon parts and when you think about it we've got mechon that are eating humans and uh, using uh organic beings for energy but we've now had a couple instances where we have organics using mechon parts in some way or just having them integrated in a way we don't understand but that is specifically mentioned to us so something to think about with ryan webbed and out of commission this premonition of shulks is coming true and so the the music tempo uh accelerates to a heightened level and we're racing through the cave now the cave opens up into this large watery cove it's kind of maradon like if you remember classic wow um there's green and white limestone stalactites and waterfalls um the the color of this of the stone precipices kind of reminds me of those yellowstone national park geysers with the sodium or, or, or the sulfur deposits from the from the from the geysers um there are pyreflies rising up out of the out of the crystalline pools and they they rise up and like kind of like burning pitch off from a campfire but it's more fluid and magical we're kind of immersed in these ether pools or, or or whatever it is that they are anyways we climb up the vines of one of the st- stalactite columns to the next floor uh, into a tunnel full of shrubs and webs and the this the shrubbery <laughs> and the webbery is starting to look a little like the 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 environment of the sepia toned vision the ground of the sepia toned vision looked kind of like it was outside because there's like little shrubs or dried grass on the ground and it felt like 
the location of the sepia tone vision was taking place outside, but I'm getting a sense now as we're walking through this shrubbed, webbed tunnel that it's actually maybe not too far away. Yeah, and a couple things here is that when Ryan was captured and I was running around by myself, I did uh, finish some side quests and harvest some crystal materials from the cave, a little bit of ether deposits and things. So I definitely felt like a bad friend. I, as a, <laughs> my game player took over, and I figured, you know what, Ryan's probably gonna be fine. He's a main character, so I think he, he'll be all right. And I I did some detours. Um, one thing I noticed is there are areas that have things in them, but I'm my jump is too short to get to them. And I thought, oh, well, maybe there's another pathway that will loop around. As far as I've seen, I've seen like two or three of these now where I, I, I'm i expecting a, a high jump or double jump later in the game because uh, I couldn't get to these areas. Um, but so anyway, that was just a small side point. Um, now, when, when Ryan was first about to be captured, dialing back just a little bit, uh, Shulk did yell to him, Ryan, no, not that way, or, or something like it. It's showing that Shulk does believe, I don't know if it's instinctual, like anyone would do that, but Shulk does believe to some degree that he needs to change what's happening here. He's seen it happen, and he, he believes he has the ability to make it change. Now, he's just doing it with his words. He He's not, you know, opening up the Monado and dialing through the settings to see like hey do i have a time travel option here but he he is aware that when we're going into this scene that you described it's he's seeing all the same things from his vision so we even know we're dialed into shulk's headspace where he says it's all happening it's coming true exactly as the vision says so um that was on his mind when it all went down uh, now, as you said, we're in this new area. Uh, we are at the Arachno Queen's Nest. I, I believe that would be the best way to describe it, or maybe that, that's the official description. Uh, I saw it on the map as Arachno Queen's Nest. Okay, sounds good. So we are in this fight with the Arachno Queen, um, and the Monado unlocks a new ability to create a hexagonal shield bubble. It's a pretty neat sequence of events. Ryan races into the mouth of the giant arachnid from Shulk's vision. Shulk screams at him. The Monado's kanji glows yellow. Usually it's blue or maybe it's red sometimes. And a and that shield, the shield is is like in the shape of several golden plates that completely envelops Ryan. This is very familiar to lots of RPG players. The, the a, a protect spell, so to speak, uh, for Final Fantasy players, but a lot of other RPGs use it as well. And they use the motif of a hexagonal bubble that uh, surrounds a, a party member. So with that, the Monado unlocks this ability. Shulk casts it and saves Ryan and changes fate. Now, this is actually a battle mechanic too as we get into the battle with the Arachna Queen where the UI will warn you of a potentially devastating attack coming down the line. It'll give you a countdown and it'll give you the opportunity to change destiny by casting a signature Monado ability to negate that devastating attack. In this case, the shield that we saw in the cutscene is now a battle ability the Monado has unlocked. One thing about this fight with the boss, um, 
I mostly understood everything that's going on, but at this point, I have a feeling that the UI for combat, to me personally, is getting a little over-designed, to use a word I heard online. Uh, sometimes there's just too much going on. for it, it turns into visual noise to me. This is me as my job as a UX designer in real life, so there's things like that I think about at times. Like, how could I dial back some of these other elements. I'm going to introduce a new element that's flashing onto the screen of, holy shit, your guy's going to die. You have to cast this, you know. And there's just stuff flashing, glowing, like screaming for your attention at all angles. Maybe other people that don't suffer from some of the attention disorders I have don't see it as much of a problem. But that that's how I was feeling a little bit in this fight was a lot of things having a lot of design to them sometimes works against it but i will quote uh or paraphrase a quote from professional video game expert tim rogers uh who says you wouldn't be mad for kicking a car into overdrive so some people like over design some people like the the hype element of things just going nuts on the screen so uh to each their own i guess given that the player can take advantage of the new fate-changing ability. The fight was fairly straightforward. It is very cinematic. The Arachno Queen is enormous, and it's it's pretty thrilling to take take her down. Uh, I, I remember that we had to um, assist uh, fellow teammates. Let's say you got knocked down. You had to walk up to, let's say if you're playing Shulk, you had to walk over to Ryan, who was, who was prone on the ground, and help him back up, or else he would take... Who stunned or take extra damage or couldn't really help himself otherwise. Um, but other, but beyond those two mechanics, it was a fairly, again, fairly straightforward. But then again, we're probably pretty over leveled and nicely geared as well. Yeah, it was a fun fight. I I felt um, appropriate level of danger for a boss battle, and I felt engaged in it. So kudos. I'm noticing that we're tying in gameplay mechanic with these boss battles because with metal face we had to learn how to use monado arts on top of our topple combos and against Arach the arachno queen we had to we had to play around with this new protect ability and so i think in the future we're going to have more we're going to lock more skills we're going to we're going to apply them in more boss battles um which which i'm interested in seeing how that plays out i i really like learning abilities uh with an interactive element to kind of teach it to me as i'm playing it feels great it's again like i was talking about the gem crafting earlier it's immersive it 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 gives me a sense of this is specifically how the character learned how to do this one of to go on a just quick little tangent, one of the things that I personally don't like in contrast of playing modern World of Warcraft in comparison to the old days is that you just kind of learn things and abilities land on your hotbars, dynamically level up on their own, and just kind of things just show up and, you know, your character starts doing XYZ and then they learn all their abilities on the fly as you're running around. Now, a game designer might say, that's great because it means you instantly have access to this and your your adventure isn't interrupted. But for me, the person who wants an immersive experience, I liked going back into the town and speaking to a combat, combat expert and having them tell me a new technique. Or I liked personally, as I level up, I look at my talent points and I invest that point somewhere that's meaningful to me. So 
in that same vein, the fact that in this fight, our new ability to, was delivered to us in a meaningful way uh, through a learning experience or through, in this case, some sort of supernatural growth experience. It was prompted to us. I love that. That's one of the reasons I love video games. And so uh, I really have to appreciate that for what it's worth. And I, I've grown to kind of loathe games that just automatically hand you things with no explanation, no sense of impact to them. We emerge out of Tefra Cave immediately after this fight and retreated to another grassy plain akin to the fields outside of Colony 9. And we look up and the camera zooms, is like a drone shot zooming upwards into the atmosphere, uh, panning out wider and wider and wider until we get to see that we are on the Bionis knee and we can see the superstructure of the world, let's say, itself. We can see an, an enormous blade cutting across from one titan to the other. Uh, Bionis is looking very verdant in this age. There, there's lots of greenery. There's long drapes of vines coming off of it. Shulk and Ryan take a moment to appreciate this vision. And Ryan says something like, man, I never get used to this sight. And then we kind of glance out over the ocean um, past this cloud of this line of clouds and we see these menacing red electric glows in the distance and that's mechanus we get this sense that over there is the the badland over there is mordor it's it's in the distance we can see the mountains smoking in the distance and that that, that sort of uh, sense that we're getting death mountain yonder we can see it from here couldn't see it from colony nine but we can see it from here yeah that i think that's the the stark vision for them is maybe they haven't had this perspective before the mountains obscure it you know because it's not like a typical planet where you can just kind of look up and the higher you go you can see more stuff there's definitely a, a way in which your vision can be obstructed to half of the other worlds. You know, you can't even see McConnell's from Colony 9, but here it's plain as day. Um, the the vision of it, I think this, like you said, the scale is done really well um, with the sword and everything. And as a painter... I, I see McConnus being obscured by clouds, a, an appropriate level of atmospheric blending, uh, so that, like you pointed out, you just see the red eyes and a, and a silhouette. There isn't any sense of detail or beauty to this figure. Like we've commented on Macon's Victorian design, and generally they look pretty menacing too. But there is a, a sense of design and beauty to them. But uh, here we have this haunting shadow. Uh, if you you remember the the vision of Ganon when you die in Zelda Two, it's just a, a black silhouette with piercing eyes. So uh, it's very kind of iconic what they're doing here to show this looming figure, and I believe that's what's on the box of the game as well. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yes, that's uh, right. Hovering above the green grass sea field that the Monado is sliced into. Yeah. So that that's there. But like I said, again, for I, we haven't, we didn't play the original Wii version. We haven't been looking at footage from the original Wii version for this. What I'm getting is uh, actually a pretty great scene and how the, the atmospheric blending and everything 
kind of created this uh, moment. After Ryan and Shulk have appreciated the scale of the world that we're on, the camera cuts to this red overlay. We're getting a sense that it's kind of like Terminator vision. We're getting a sense that we're looking through a, a computer screen. And then the camera cuts again and a mech, a small, let's call it a drone scout type mechon is spying on the two. I think Star Wars has predisposed me to always calling these droids, but in modern day, now that we have drones, which we didn't when I was a kid, or or the drones we have now where everybody's got one, that's probably what I should call them, but they're still droids to me. Uh, so, uh, yeah, the the small aerial droid is watching us, observing us, taking in our exploits. This has been a fairly, aside from the spiders that had mech on parts, this has been a fairly mech on free chapter up to this point. Um, but the, the little mech on fly, as I'll call him, uh, flies away and we see him join with uh, what I would believe is his master, and they're giving some sort of report in a, in a language that we don't understand. But uh, there is another metal face. Um, I don't know if it's the same metal face with a repaired metal face or if this is a different one. Because <laughs> uh, this one is it's missing like the bottom half of it, but it doesn't have the damage to the eye. So I'm going to go 80-20, the 80 being that this is a new uh mechon that is uh of the same what do i call it level or generation of the previous one we shot in the face um so we see him consuming a hom in this cutscene. so he pops him up into the air and eats him like a popcorn that you're eating like stylishly yeah yep and, and the thing is it's it's another soldier armored mech or hom. So we saw the traitors before were in the same gear. So we believe that the traitors were killed by the giant spider. The giant spider had mech on parts. This cave was a place that traitors previously frequented as a reliable route between locations. So there's another theory of mine is that Mechon are using small components to rile up organic creatures to some degree. I don't know. Again, just a small theory. But we went from this place being safe for traders to the traders are murdered by a threat. And then we see a Mechon partaking in eating a hom of the same you know, character model as the ones we saw slain in the cave, right? Mm. So I'm just kind of connecting dots, maybe for no payoff whatsoever, but I wanted to throw that out there. I don't think it's the same large mechon as the one we saw in the previous chapter. Uh, his colors are a little different. The room, the room that we're treated to as we're kind of observing this, the scene of the drone ratting us out to the larger boss man, it's almost completely black except for these glowing green pillars of light. Uh, the enormous mechon is listening, of course, to this drone. And he, he's black and he's shiny with green energy. He has those little red, the, the red, the rivets in his plated armor um, have surging red lines of energy, kind of like Metal Face did in the previous chapter. 
And the end, I also noticed in a shot that this large mechon had that glowing thorax, like Metal Face did as well. Um, and he has a face. The, the, the last part of the chapter here is that he, he reveals another face. It's emotionless. It doesn't make, it doesn't change shape. It doesn't, none of our antagonists say anything in this game so far. I don't know why I'm hung up on that, but, but uh, they've got faces. It's important they have faces, but they don't speak. That's generally what you want to do in your first act of anything is your enemy needs to just be this easily hateable, threatening presence that you can't be compelled to care about at all. So in we're going to talk about the Matrix again, the agents, you know, you just start off with them being uh, total jerks, no connection to them whatsoever. And it isn't until kind of the final act of the movie that you get agent Smith kind of opening up about his ethos and uh, what motivates him, things like that. Then um, I'll kind of cite uh, the the game gears of war, kind of a weird reference, but the, you spend the whole first game just killing aliens. They're just big, grunty, disgusting balls of clay, you know, they're gross and you have no problem killing them. But as the series progresses, you learn that there's kind of a history of experimentation, exploitation on this world, things like that, to where, okay, well, now I still hate these guys and want to murder the hell out of them, but I'm getting a sense of maybe this like this world belonged to them at one point, and maybe I should show some empathy for them, and maybe humans are the ones that suck. I don't know. But you always start that first act out with just a, a threat that you can't be bothered to care about. So, you know, like you said, we, we don't have, we don't have any dialogue from these Mechon and I think I'm okay with that. I, I don't need a reason to know what their motivations are just yet. I have with Fiora's death, I have the clear, uh, North star of what I want to do. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're going to have a, a speaking Mechon uh, un- unless there's an upgraded tier of, technological improvement an evolution of them but i'm not i'm not expecting it to and so i feel like our our antagonists are going to be some other some other let's say soft-bodied race i don't know what that looks like yet there's a lot of game ahead of us but um Mm -hmm. that's just kind of what it's looking like to me some sort of handler mastermind type i have a couple bullet point things i could just rapid fire off here sure so one thing that's mentioned in the course of this is Colony 6 is the only other colony with Homs left on it. So are Homs going extinct? I don't have an answer to that yet, but that seems pretty harrowing to say everyone we've met is 50% of all people, potentially, unless Colony 6 is huge. Where did so, you get that info? Um, When they were first setting out, I thought that they said something along the lines of Colony 6 is the only other Homs colony left. We can verify that, and if it's not true, uh, just cut this then. (laughs) So, yeah. Was that in this chapter? Yes. I think it was when they were setting out. Okay. Um, Let's see. My next bullet point is... Oh, when Shulk realizes he can change the future... Uh, he kind of has an epiphany and a, a moment of catharsis in that he can actually do something about the visions. Now, again, we already learned that doing the side quests, but uh, a a funny little quote from Ryan to me was that Fiora would have liked it too. So 
I'm pretty sure she would have thought it was great to not die. So (laughs) it's like Shulk's already feeling bad about this. Like I couldn't do anything to save her. And then he finds out, yeah, you actually could have done something to save her with the Monado. And uh, Ryan says, yeah, that would have been great for her. She would have loved that, except Mm. you didn't. So Hadn't, hadn't realized that power yet. Yeah, so uh, it's kind of a goofy line of dialogue from Ryan, in my opinion. Sure. And then lastly, uh, the giant spider in a cave boss battle. I think that's just a obligatory fantasy staple. You got to have one of those in your series at one point. Uh, Goma from Zelda would be proud, but we, you've got the giant spider from Lord of the Rings. Um, give me, give me another one. I'm sure you got one. Giant spiders. Giant. Now I'm going to hang you out to dry. Okay. <laughs> that concludes our exploration of Xenoblade Chronicles Chapter 3. Join us next time for Chapter 4, in which we will, we assume we're going to be heading to, to Colony 6, but hey, anything can happen. We can get waylaid, we can get thrown in prison, we can get, we can get stuck in a sewer. There are obligatory spider monsters why why shouldn't there be obligatory you know sewer dungeons right um certainly we'll find one before the end if you are playing xenoblade along with us you should finish chapter four before hitting that next episode this has been a production of hero with a thousand potions recorded on thursday january 20th 2022 we've got an email hero with a thousand potions at gmail.com that's one zero 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 potions we have other socials like discord and twitter that i just set up today and you should join those as well. Um, the Twitter handle is hero with a thousand pots, as in, you know, potions, short for potions. It's short for potions. Again, I'm Tyler, that's Nate, and uh, in the future, we've been thinking about other things we want to talk about on this podcast, not just Xenoblade Chronicles and not just other long-form games, but other sort of um, single-episode content, and we're coming up we're coming up with this idea that we're teasing around called, well, it might be called Hero with a Thousand Side Quests, where we're going to have one-shot conversations about a particular topic and this was originally nate's idea yeah and i think uh i i've been wanting to talk about maybe a top five games that got us through the pandemic we're getting we're rounding the corner of of getting to two years here since uh covid land started and uh definitely at certain stretches there were periods of sitting inside by ourselves or with our significant others for uh, long stretches. And I have a few games in mind that uh, really I kept revisiting time and time again and gave me that sense of uh, it's okay being inside having nothing to do for a year, two years. (laughs) So uh, I thought we could talk about that and say how we uh, experienced those in a new way. Mm-hmm. That, that'll be just one example. We're thinking, I couldn't tell you what the frequency will be, but every handful of episodes will take a break uh, from the long form content and do some sort of interesting single topic that we'll speak about for an hour, hour 15, something like that. And I think the first one will be the top five games that got us through the pandemic. I think that'll be a fun first one. Yeah, I, I have my list ready. I could talk. I probably talk about my list for an hour, so <laughs> I might need to cut it down. All right. Well, uh, we'll catch you guys next time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye now.
I, I understood that reference. It's like a book club with, oh, I don't have a thing prepared for this. I need to do that over. I welcome a music major to come in and tell me I'm completely wrong and I don't know what I'm talking about. Mod, modado. Modnado? Modnado, that's better. It's an all new Modnado. Ryan Temp, hold on. <clears throat> with, with Ryan, fuck. Well, that wraps up our exploration of Xenoblade Chronicle. Shit. I want to walk out of the secret.